0: You see Paul's ministry, it was tenacious, it was consistent. He was doing this in humility and in trial, so they knew his way of life and they knew his teaching. But just a few moments later in that same address, he said this, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You're listening to a sermon series titled, Romans, Preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Lord, this is your word, and we're thankful to gather as your people, empowered by your spirit, who is our teacher, to be instructed and encouraged and edified through the proclamation of the gospel through your word. And Lord, we know that today, just as Paul wrote these letters inspired by the Holy Spirit centuries ago, Lord, we know that today we can, in the same manner, allow the scripture, allow the gospel to uh, bring life to us. And Lord, as we're um, studying it today and as we're commissioned out today, Lord, we know that it will bear fruit Lord, so we ask that you would do that today, that you'd work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, and Lord, that we would uh, together understand this text and be encouraged in our faith. Lord, we thank you that we're not the only expression of the church here in this community. We pray for the other churches around us, Lord, that they would be faithful to proclaim the gospel. Lord, we pray again for the churches in Ukraine and in Russia today, that you would strengthen the body of believers as they meet Together, maybe under threat, Lord, that around the world today the gospel would be heralded and savored by your people. So, Lord, work salvation, work repentance, work in a way that only your Spirit can work. We ask for your glory and for our good. We pray, Amen. 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 Well, you may not have heard of the the 2008 milk scandal. There was a particularly large company that sold a brand of milk and infant formula. And because of the inspections that they wanted to pass, the quality inspections, quality control, uh, there was an increase that was required in their milk and in their um, infant formula. And so they had to increase the amount of nitrogen and specifically the amount of protein in their products. And so what was the solution? Well, rather than actually adding protein, they tainted their diluted milk and formula with uh, this, product known as melamine. What is melamine, you ask? Well, melamine is used in some dishware. It's used in dry erase markers. It's used in formica and insulation. So probably not something you want to add to milk or baby formula. Uh, Sounds very healthy. So what could go wrong when you add this to products that children or babies or infants specifically consume? Well, what well, the inevitable ended up happening, 16 babies immediately were diagnosed with kidney stones and scientists began to figure out what was going on. They immediately traced this poisoning to this particular company. And out of 300,000 people or babies, you could say, uh, victims, six of these babies died of kidney damage and another 54,000 ended up being hospitalized. Now, you may not have heard of this incident, just you know, 12, 12, uh, 14 years ago because this happened not in the United States but in China. And yet the horrible nature of this event still rings true for all of us. Just think about this for a minute. Imagine this, intentional mass poisoning of the unassuming and the innocent for the direct selfish gain of the poisoners. Now as atrocious as that sounds, and some of you are, are like moving uncomfortably in your seats, That sounds atrocious, but yet that's been happening in the church for 2,000 years. It's happening in the church and in the world today. Let me repeat what's happening. Not that milk's being poisoned, but listen specifically what I said. The intentional mass poisoning of the unassuming and the innocent for the direct selfish gain of the poisoner. So as we conclude the book of Romans this morning, Paul the Apostle seemed to end the letter about two weeks ago when we finished in verse... 16, where he said, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. You expect that to be the end of the letter. But there's one more important closing warning for the Italian believers who were reading this together in their congregation. In light of what we've learned in this epistle, namely that the gospel brings about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. In light of that, Paul now closes the letter with one more appeal, And that appeal is to safeguard sound doctrine. Safeguard the truth of the gospel. There has always been, and there always will be, a threat to sound doctrine, a threat to truth. There always has been. From the very first command or revelation that God gave to mankind, God said, do not eat of the tree that I command you. And we'll be studying this in the next few weeks when we get into Genesis. Very, very first thing, right out of the gate, did God actually say, That was Satan, the deceiver's question. Let's question the truth of God. Let's question the revelation of God. Let's question sound doctrine. And so this will continue to happen throughout time by demonically motivated and carnally inspired false teachers who want to poison God's people, uh, or you could say the innocent, for selfish gain. So what we've learned in Romans, just to recap before we get into this text, we've learned in the whole uh, letter that there is an infinite creator God of love, a God of justice who doesn't wink at sin, but who rightly deals with ungodliness and unrighteousness with his fearsome wrath. We learned that in chapter one. We've learned that men and women are suppressing that truth through rebellion, that they're like those who hold a beach ball underwater, And then they say, well, prove to me there's a beach ball. We've exchanged his glory and his truth and even our own identity for corrupted substitutes. We've learned in this letter that all people, whether they know his law or not, they are without excuse. We've learned that there's a righteousness, thankfully, glory to God, there's a righteousness that has been revealed apart from law through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, irregardless of your ethnicity or your religious background. In this letter, we've come to see that this has always been my faith. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we now have access to God because of Christ's finished work. We've seen that we were all born in Adam in chapter five, that condemnation was brought to all people because he was our representative. But we've also learned that in our second and true and greater Adam, who represents us, we now have life and justification. We've learned that sin, therefore, no longer has power over us, no more rule, because we've now been crucified, buried, and now we've been risen with Christ. Yes, we still battle with the flesh, because we have a pulse, we're still human, but we've learned that like a widow, we're now joined to a new bridegroom, and we're no longer under law and the threat of condemnation, because we're under grace. For that reason, we've also learned that there is no looming condemnation for us anymore, but we've been adopted as his heirs. We now have the power of the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us and who sheds the love of God abroad into our hearts and reminds us that nothing, not even that one thing you're thinking of, can separate us from his love. We've even learned in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that God is providentially at work, and he always has been, that there's always been a remnant of his people, And that remnant is faithful, and we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. We've been elected to the praise of his glorious grace, not because of works, but because of him who calls. We've been learning and have learned that in his good pleasure, he even works in our obstinance, and that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, but also to the Gentile. We've learned the truth of the gospel, which will cause us to view God's mercies and then to respond. And the response looks like a personal and corporate sanctifying, uh, you could say, offering that we respond with worship, with obedience, and with transformation because of the mercies of God in our life. We've learned how to live out the gospel in community with one another as we welcome one another, even with the liberties of some and the convictions of others. And how do we balance those things in truth and in grace? We've learned how to even submit as Christians to governing authorities, knowing that there is a sphere that government has and yet it's limited. And there's a sphere the family has and it's limited. And there's a sphere that the church has. Throughout this book, we've been reminded of Paul's heart for the Jew, but his also intentional ministry to the Gentile. We've seen the importance and the urgency of the gospel that he preaches. So now, as he concludes this letter, Paul has one more important warning. And it's in light of the purity of God's truths that he's just recounted for us and laid out for us so systematically, so logically, that some would even say, this seems like an attorney wrote this. This is so systematically laid out and logically um, poured out that it builds upon its case until it crescendos with the power Of uh, worship. And so, in light of these truths, what we're going to see today is that there's a warning. There's a warning for us to safeguard it. So, in these final verses in Romans 16, we're going to see three things, but we're going to spend most of our time in the first one. We're going to see closing warning in verses 17 through 20, closing greetings, and we'll just be real brief with those um, verses 21 through 23. And then a closing benediction. And from that benediction, we'll learn three great truths under that point. So let's begin and spend most of our time in this very important first idea um, that there's a closing warning. Verse 17, read it again with me. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to what? To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And then he just says, avoid them. Now, many scholars get wildly triggered here, and that happens from time to time. They get a little bit stressed out. Uh, They look at this and they go, whoa, 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 time out. Paul changes his tone dramatically from where he's just been with greet one another with a holy kiss to now being very strong. Some believe and teach, and I reject this, that this was supposed to go at the end of Ephesians, that, that we just got some of these documents mixed up. And so this is supposed to go at the end of the book of Ephesians, and there's. I guess there's, I could see why they'd think that because he talks about the God of peace will crush Satan. And at the end of Ephesians 6, there's this spiritual warfare. So I I see that, but it's really a a ridiculous idea. The argument though, is that Paul does change tone. He he seems to be wrapping up and then he, he drops one more big idea. But I understand why he does that. In fact, I love one person's idea. I don't know if this is what happened, but I think it's interesting. They argue that, Paul was dictating to his uh, amanuensis, the guy who's, who's scribing, Tertius, and that Paul stopped for a minute and said, Tertius, let me, whatever writing tool he had, let me just grab that for a minute. Let me add one more postscript. In fact, we know that he does that from Philemon, verse 19, 2 Thessalonians three seventeen, He says, I write this, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Galatians, at the end, he says, see with what big letters, large letters I write, uh, with my own hands. So Paul may have, so there's one more important thing, Tertius. Let me let me just add this. Um, the reason I, I think that no matter what you believe, the, the reason we know that there's a little more of an emphasis here is because he's just instructed them to greet one another with holiness, and he's been considering all the churches of Christ. And so what I believe is that as he's considering the harmony, the unity, the holiness of the church, he's reminded There's wait, there's one more thing we have to safeguard. There's one more thing that every church throughout time needs to safeguard in light of God's truth. So Paul's appeal to them here is twofold. If you want to jot these down, first of all, he says, watch out and second, avoid. Watch out and avoid. The church in Rome is to be watchful and to be quick to avoid whom? Well, he says in verse 17, those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to to the doctrine you've been taught. Would you circle that phrase, cause, div- uh, cause divisions, and then create obstacles? That, that phrase, create obstacles, comes from a Greek word, scandalon. Does that sound familiar? That's where we get the word scandal from. The idea in this word, create obstacles, scandalon is the word that was a piece of wood that holds open an animal trap. So if you try to trap a small squirrel, you, you would hold it up with a with a small stick. That's the word. The word is used of that small stick. Uh, you could even use this uh, word snare. This is where the bait was trapped or laid to trap the animal. Not to cuddle the animal, not so you could have your own pet squirrel. No, the idea behind this trapping is to slaughter the animal. He says, watch out because there are some who create obstacles. He's already taught us in Romans 14, 13, about these obstacles. He said in that text, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block, or here's the word, a hindrance, a scandalon in the way of a brother, a trap, a snare, something that trips up the believer. He says, watch out for those who do this. Not only watch out, but avoid them. But he also says, watch out and avoid those who cause Divisions. So his solution is not to fight these false teachers alone, but divide from them, avoid them, stay away from them. Division is inevitable for the Christian. I know some people would believe and teach that we just need to get along with everyone, but but division is actually inevitable. You either divide against false teaching and false teachers, or you will divide against true believers. One of the two will happen. Remember, Jesus said, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. And one person pointed out, there's no way to love the wolves without hating the sheep. And there's no way to love the sheep without hating the wolves. So in short, some people don't qualify for a holy kiss. And I think that's what Paul's saying. Greet everyone with a holy kiss, but there's some you should not greet with a holy kiss. In fact, these are some you should divide from. Paul told Titus, it wasn't just here to the church in Rome, but he told Titus, as for a person who stirs up division... Warn him once, warn him twice, then have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he's self-condemned. And so we warn someone, hey, you're becoming divisive with this. And then they do it again. You say, listen, I'm warning you again, don't be divisive. And they do it again, we are to avoid them. We are uh, to have nothing to do with them. Back in chapter six, the reason we do this, the reason we avoid these divisive people is because they're teaching something that's contrary to the doctrine that we've been taught. So if you notice in verse 17, he says, the doctrine. Okay, back in chapter six, Paul had said this, but thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the doctrine. That's the phrase there. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So this word teaching, this word doctrine, they have the definite article the. It's not just a doctrine. You learned a doctrine, a teaching. It's the doctrine. Doctrine. So it's very different. It's very distinct here. They, these words refer to the body of Christian truth, the body of Christian doctrine that we espouse or herald as, you could say, orthodox. Not the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, but Orthodox meaning the straight and correct, accurate uh, teaching that we hold as Christians, that all Christians who are truly in Christ hold to. There are some things that are secondary issues, but there's some things that are primary. And the modern church, sadly, we've weakened our emphasis on creeds and confessions. And because we've done that, that has caused the modern church to become weak. And, and what happens is we get our theology from the songs we're singing only, the, the the modern worship songs, which are for the most part very empty of truth, very empty of doctrine, uh, and yet these creeds and these confessions help us bolster what is doctrinal. So I I love what Founders Ministry says. They say a confession is a tried and true teaching tool. It lays out the faith in a clear systematic way and it shows the connections among the various doctrines we believe. It also serves as a standard by which teaching in the church can be measured. I personally love confessions. Um, Many of you Follow different confessions. I think the 1689 London Confession is probably the best. Uh, these are organized and they're time tested, and that's one of the best parts of them. Uh, it, it helps me clearly and accurately and quickly summarize what I believe. Uh, so in Romans, Paul says, Keep your eyes out for people who cause divisions, who cause hindrances. They're not worthy of listening to, they're not worthy of following. But in another place in the New Testament, he tells us to watch out for something else. In fact, in the book of Philippi uh, of Philippians, rather, the Church of Philippi, he said this, Philippians 3:17. This is on the positive ledger. He says, "Brothers, join me in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So there's a negative side. You're to watch out and avoid, those who teach contrary doctrine and live contrary, but you're also on the positive side to look out and to follow the example of those who teach truth. So why, why are we to do this? Is Paul just having a bad day? Is he just ornery as he's finished? This has been a long letter, guys. You know, I'm just grumpy. So now I'm telling you, watch out for, well, what's happening in verse 18 is that Paul says there's an end to this. So if you look at verse 18, he says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. This is not just someone who made a mistake and decided to teach something that was off. This is someone with the actual intent of deceiving the naive because they're serving themselves. And notice he says they're not servants of Christ. Paul says they're feeding their own appetites. They're not feeding Christ church. It should be the goal. I want to go on record. It should be the goal of each and every elder in Christ church to shepherd the flock of God by adequately feeding God's people with God's word. That is the goal and that is the job description of the elder. So listen to these words from the book of Acts. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord. Let me just think of the the opposite nature of this compared to what Paul's saying here in Romans. I served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see Paul's ministry. It was tenacious. It was consistent. He, he was doing this in humility and in trial. So they knew his way of life and they knew his teaching. But just a few moments later in that same address, he said this, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's why we believe, by the way, in the the total exposition of the scriptures. It's not just Pastor Pilgrim's ideas. Oh, he's, he's oh he's really getting passionate today because he's going off on his hobby horse again. He's getting political again. No, no. We do, we believe in the whole declaration of the whole counsel of God. And Paul says, I didn't shrink back from that. I gave you all of the scriptures. And then he said, right after this, this is very. Uh, discouraging in some ways. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's the point. It's to draw people away. Therefore, he says, be alert, remembering that for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This wasn't just empty truth that Paul could parrot and recite. This this had meaning to him. There was depth to it. He would proclaim truth night and day with tears. And so you compare that to these men here in Romans who are using, verse 18, smooth talk and flattery. The word for smooth talk is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, and it means eloquence or elegant speech. So the idea is that it's, it's, it's translated well, smooth. And flattery, you know what flattery is. I'm going to tell you what you want to hear so I can obtain something from you. And so if you strip away the eloquence and you strip away the adulation, what do you have? You you quickly see that these are false people selling you a bogus product. And so he says you're to avoid them, you're to mark them, have nothing to do with them. Call them out, stay away from them, don't embrace them, don't read their books, don't attend their conferences, don't watch their videos, don't say there's a little bit of truth here, but there's a lot. Oh, I know where this seemed to come from, but, but you know what, there's some validity to it. No, we're to have nothing to do with it. We're to avoid it. So then in verse 19, he says this. This seems like a different thought, but there's the same train of thought. He says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. He's still speaking about doctrine here. And Paul could rejoice in the fact that the Romans had been obedient to the faith for the sake of Christ's name. But he still appeals to them to have wisdom in sound doctrine, to be wise as to what is good, and to be innocent, ignorant, you could say, as to the things that are contrary to the gospel. One person said you could paraphrase verse 19 as this Enroll in the graduate schools of godliness and repeatedly flunk out of the kindergartens of sin. I love that. Enroll in the the graduate schools of goodness, of good doctrine, truth, but be an absolute ignoramus in the area of evil. When you've spent 15 chapters recounting God's mercies, and then you realize people are mass poisoning God's people with false doctrine, you don't leave the bottles in the fridge and say, well, maybe this bottle didn't, have any poison in it. No. You smash them on the kitchen floor and you make sure no one buys that formula ever again. Now, in verse 20, Paul says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And I like the contrast here. This seems to be this seems to be almost a paradox. The God of peace will crush Satan. <laughs> that sounds like a sounds like a paradox. He could have the God of war we'll put an end to Satan, but he says the God of peace. Now, I like this parallel. I like the parallel right before that of good opposed to evil. I like the parallel of the Lord Christ in verse 18 opposed to the deceivers. I like the opposition of the true teaching and the contrary doctrine doctrine of verse 17. And so the God of peace is the one who brings order. Satan is the one who brings chaos. Satan brings accusation. God brings acceptance. Satan produces enmity with God, but God who is rich in mercy brings us near to himself through the blood of his son. Satan has already been decidedly defeated, but we know he refuses to concede his defeat. But the God of peace, the God of shalom is the word, of wholeness, of completeness, will put a final end to evil. And eventually, though Satan has been crushed, Uh, by the cross one day uh, under the feet of his glorious bride Satan will be put to a final end. The head of the serpent will ultimately be crushed by the seed of Eve the Messiah but we as his people will also see a final end to the crafty dragon in due time. And so I love this hope that the God of peace he will do the crushing but it will be under the feet of the church. I love that. And then he says In light of that, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see, in these last days, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we need to be with us. We learned that last week. In the midst of great dark clouds, we need great mercy. We need great grace. And so, in light of all that Paul has taught, he appeals to them to safeguard it and to separate themselves from those who would teach any gospel contrary to to the gospel that we've learned. Now, Paul seems to, again, end the book of Romans with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, but then he begins to give some closing greetings. So let's look at these closing greetings. Verse 21 says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Suscipiter, my kinsman." I tried it the other way. I'm going with Suscipiter, all right? Now, Timothy, let's look through each one. Timothy was truly Paul's fellow worker, if anyone was. He had been right alongside him for the past eight years or so. Some argue that Paul led Timothy to the faith. That's why he calls him my son in the faith. Uh, They were about to depart for Jerusalem, but as we learned a few weeks ago, that trip ended uh, prematurely, and Paul eventually was led to house arrest. And later, when Paul writes his final words there to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, Paul said, do your best to come to me soon. Those are some of his last words. He, he appeals to Timothy. Timothy, do your best to come visit me. Uh, I need to see your face. If anyone was Paul's fellow worker, it was this young, seemingly timid pastor who eventually would pastor the church in Ephesus. And church legend, it's more legend than history, records that Timothy began to protest the orgy worship that happened in Ephesus regarding the worship of Artemis, the false goddess. And when Timothy began to protest the the sinful debauchery that was happening in the worship of Artemis, the history or church legend actually records that um, the people of the city rallied around Timothy, not in a good way. They surrounded him and then they clubbed him to death according to church history. And so Paul says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you Rome. Well, then he mentions three names. Lucius, his name means light. Jason, whose name means healer. Suscipitor, whose name means one who defends the father. And we don't know much about them. They have great names, great, great meanings, light, healer, and the the defender of the father. Um, The third guy there is related to Paul somehow. He's my kinsman. And Paul's mentioned up in uh, the last section that we looked at, uh, some other folks who were his kinsmen. Then verse 22, this sounds a little different. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, again, it wasn't that Tertius really wrote the letter and just put Paul's name on it. No, Paul was dictating this to him, and Tertius was the one scribing it. And here, Tertius, as he closes, gives one more greeting to the Roman church. Uh, this was pretty much the standard of the day. You'd have others who would, dic- uh, who would uh, scribe, what you dictated. Then there's Gaius. And he says, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church. So he's practicing hospitality, not just for Paul and his companions, but to the whole church. He had opened up his home to host the body. And he greets the church. His name means happy. Uh, Erastus, the city treasurer. his name means lovely or amiable. So these are great guys to hang out with. Happy and amiable. And Erastus was seemingly a government employee in the city of Corinth. Uh, he's the city treasurer. And Paul says, our brother Cordus. So both of them together send their greetings. Arguably, these are the ones who are uh, assisting Paul in his stay in Corinth. Now remember, we move by these words really quickly, but remember each one of these names represents someone who was helpful in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. They were helpful in the furtherance of the gospel. And so we looked at that a few weeks ago where we all have a part to play in kingdom work because we're all citizen, citizens of God's kingdom. We may not have a visible um, part to play as much as others, but we all have an important role to play. So Paul seems to end again with verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Uh, amen. Amen. And some of your translations, we do not have uh, verse 24, uh, but some people, uh, some translations put it in there. So uh, in some of your translations, you'll have it. Others move it up a bit to the end of verse 20. Uh, but as you see in verse 25, we now have a final, final, for real closing. Uh, and this is a benediction or a doxology. This is a, an offering of praise uh, to God. So, note with me this closing benediction, verse twenty-five. Now to Him, who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, and that doesn't mean that it was Paul's alone. But he's putting the personal nature. This is this is my gospel. This is your gospel, according to you could say the gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. There's so much we could cover here. We could do a sermon alone on this text, but I just want to point out three things from this doxology from this benediction that I find very helpful and instructive for us So we'll put them on the screen. Number one, what we learn from this prayer is that the gospel of God and faithful preaching strengthens the people of God. Paul says, with all the challenges that the Roman church is about to face and Jesus' church throughout time, our God is able to establish us. The word for strengthen in verse 25 is also translated establish. One who's able to come alongside you and to provide a foundation from which you build your strength. He says, our God is the one who's able to give us power, who's able to establish and strengthen us. But look at it. That power comes to us through the faithful proclamation of who Christ is and what Christ has done. He says, it's according, this strengthening is according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So you could argue any church that has abandoned faithful gospel proclamation for any counterfeit, for, for anything. Any church that has abandoned faithful preaching for TED Talks, for anything less than uh, the truth of the gospel will not be strengthened, it'll be anemic. And so now to him who's able to strengthen you according to faithful gospel proclamation, that will strengthen the people of the church. Secondly, though, we learned that the gospel, number two, has been manifested for all nations. Paul says this was a mystery. It was according to the revelation of the mystery. It was kept secret for long ages. Now, this isn't like a murder mystery, a whodunit. The the mystery in the scripture is something that previously was unknown, but now has been made known. And so what was unknown but now made known, boldly declared, uh, he says this has been made known to all nations, The truth of the gospel was veiled, but now has been disclosed. Back in chapter one, Paul said, we've received grace. We've received apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. And we've learned that throughout this epistle. If there's any letter in the New Testament that speaks of Jew and Gentile and what God has done, what Christ has done, it's the book of Romans. And so the good news is for the Jew first, but not for the Jew only. This is glorious good news that we should, amen, that the grace of God has been extended to all nations. And you and I are fruit of that truth. But thirdly, we learned that the gospel is beyond man's wisdom. He says, to the only wise God, he alone is wise. Uh, forevermore be glory through Jesus Christ. No man could dream this up. No man could dream up the good news. In fact, Galatians 1 says that, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This isn't something that we dreamed up in a, in a staff meeting. Let's come up with what would be a good idea. Let's, let's send the Son from heaven to earth to become one of us, a truly God, truly man. Let's have him take on our sin and then die in our place and propitiate, like that, that would not, that's not something that we came up with. So all the glory of the gospel goes to God because God alone belongs the wisdom to redeem mankind through the sacrifice of his perfect son. So Paul could close the book of Romans saying, to the only wise God be glory. We've learned about glory through this book, that man exchanged the glory of God, that we fall short of the glory of God. We've learned that in Romans, the end of Romans 11, that Uh, that we can give God all glory and that ultimately, here he ends, that God alone deserves the glory. What a wonderful book. What a wonderful study that we've had this past year. And before we close our study this morning, I wanna apply this final text in two ways. And they're directly the way that Paul does. So in light of sound doctrine, in light of the threat of false teaching, here's two points for us to apply. Number one, I wanna encourage us to be wise in what is good, specifically sound doctrine, because sound doctrine is good. We should seek to be wise in the faith and to learn and understand what we believe. Now, sadly, uh, many Christians and many pastors, many churches have mocked the importance of good theology or sound doctrine. And the argument is a straw man argument. It goes sort of like this. It says, you know, God's not interested. He doesn't really care about sound doctrine. He's not interested in it. What he's interested in is lost people. And so the argument goes this way, like, it doesn't matter what you know. It matters how you interact with unbelievers. So the logic behind that is that, that Christ died to produce nice people. Christ died on the cross in order that the church would be nice. That we would just go and be nice, kind Sweethearted, natured people who have full mouths and hearts and empty heads. I like what one meme uh, showed, and I'm not gonna show you the meme, but a person was sitting there saying, "Ah, I don't need theology, I just need Jesus. And the person they were speaking to said, I see, so who is this Jesus? And they said, well, he's God incarnate. He's come to save mankind from their sins. And the person said, yeah, you're doing theology. (laughs) You're doing theology. See, the modern church has cashed in sound doctrine for attraction. They've cashed in sound doctrine for fervency. They've cashed in sound doctrine for virtue signaling. What's the hot topic of the month? We need to, we need to make sure we, we say something. We, we are on the bandwagon. And the, the modern church has cashed in what is true for balance. Well, I don't want to be too extreme. Let's find the balance. And, and you think about the sheer absence of doctrinal Truth in the worship gathering. And what happens is it gets exchanged for something. We, we remove sound doctrine or we remove theology from the church gathering. We replace it with something else. In fact, we don't even call it a church gathering anymore. We call it a church service where I'm here to be served. And thank you very much. And well, 60 minutes or less. Um, and so look on the screen for a minute. Look at, look at how we've moved away from what's on the left and we've exchanged that for what's on the right. So we take biblical exposition, for example. We talk about doctrinal truth that comes from the scripture, and we have exchanged that for topics and novelty. We say to the congregation, what would you like to learn about? I'd love to scratch your itching ears. What do you want to learn about? So tell me. And then we'll form a sermon series around that. And you know what? It's not exciting enough. Let's do some fun novel stuff. We exchange exegesis, which is when we let the text speak for itself. So we... we you Trust me, there have been some amazing sermons that I wanted to preach that the text wouldn't let me. The text ruined those sermons, man. I can't believe it. Because exegesis is letting the text inform the congregation. It informs our, our study. Eisegesis, on the other hand, is when we come to the text and we say, well, it doesn't really say that, but it could be saying this. And so we begin to form sermons and ideas around the white spaces. So it all becomes, here's what could have been meant by Nicodemus in the tree. So exegesis has been replaced with eisegesis. Scripture reading in the congregation. Some of us, there's a long scripture that gets posted on there. And I'll be honest, I've, I've thought that as well. Like, oh man, look how long the text is. We gotta read that while we're singing? That's a long verse. We've replaced scripture reading. We, we can't even stomach it for music. And music is good and, and great and it's biblical, but we're like, can we just do like some guitar riffs or something rather than scripture reading? The textual, this is very much modern. The textual is replaced with the visual. So rather than hearing the word, we want to see the light show. We want to see something visual demonstrated to us. So gospel proclamation is the win. That is the goal of our gathering, has been replaced with experiential. In other words, oh, I felt God's presence. Oh, it was such a wonderful church service. Why? Because I experienced something. Rather than, no, because the gospel is proclaimed. And instead of being equipped, the reason why we gather is to be equipped. We leave going, I'd rather be entertained. But Paul said this to Timothy. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound uh, sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You think we've come to that day? I think we have. We have. The demand will create the supply, and the supply is teachers who will help you suit your own passions and will turn you away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. You see, a myth is a story that has a moral imperative. It's a narrative with a moral imperative, and that's much preaching today. Tell some good stories, and then here's what you have to do about it. Rather than declaring the story, the gospel, and what we have in light of it. So uh, I just wanna challenge us as a church, appeal to us as we close this book to be wise in what is good. Be wise in sound doctrine. But secondly, that means that the converse is true as well and that is to be innocent in what is evil. Paul says, mark and avoid those who teach contrary doctrines. What would you consider contrary doctrine? Well, there's too many to list this morning. But we could list a handful. For the church in Rome and in the first century, it may have been Gnosticism. Uh, For many of you, it's Catholicism, in the sense of believing that I have to uh, perform these rituals and then have the imparted righteousness of Christ rather than the imputed righteousness of Christ and all of the spiritual calisthenics that go into Catholicism rather than faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Universalism, the fact that some people teach everyone's gonna be saved prosperity, theology, or wokeism, which is critical race theory. We haven't touched on that a ton, but that's a great threat today to sound doctrine. Peter said this. He said in 2 Peter 2, false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And sadly, many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So what are we to do? What are we to do with false teaching, false teachers? Should we learn from the new atheists and the progressive Christians and give them a free pass? Honor the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. Is that what we're to do? William Newell says this. He says, mad dogs are shot. Infectious diseases are quarantined, but evil teachers who would divide to their destruction and draw away the saints, with teaching contrary to the doctrine of Christ and his apostles, are everywhere tolerated. How ghastly and ruinous is this false toleration. I read this week that in the second century, uh, Irenaeus was combating the Gnostic heresy. And I don't have it on the screen, but listen to what he said. He said, I've labored to bring forward the blasphemous belief of these false teachers to make clearly manifest the utterly ill Conditioned carcass of these miserable little foxes. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, Even to give an account of them is a tedious affair, but I shall furnish means for overthrowing them by meeting all their opinion in the order in which they've been described, that I may not only expose the wild beast to view, but may inflict wounds upon it from every side. Irenaeus stood for truth, and that means standing against false teaching. What do we do with this poison? We avoid it, we expose it, and we combat it with biblical sound truth. As we close this morning, there was a little-known war exercise that Germany tried to execute in the 1940s. You may not have heard of it, but it was called Operation Bernhardt. And uh, the uh, operation was named after its founder. The, the plan was brilliant. The argument was to have German counterfeiters fake British currency and then to fly over all of the United Kingdom, all of, over Great Britain and drop the phony money all over the countryside, make it rain, just does all this money falling down on the countryside. And the argument was that the people will collect the money and that it'll, it's counterfeit, it'll get mixed in with the main currency and eventually it'll cause hyperinflation. We know what that's like, don't we? Hyperinflation. Uh, and then eventually that will destable, destabilize the uh, British economy and uh, it'll collapse. Thankfully, the plan was stalled and proved unsuccessful. And after the war, Britain stopped those notes and created a new designed currency to eliminate the forgery. And the reason I tell you that is there's a counterfeit work in, in the same way in the church. The argument is to devalue the currency of the gospel. It's Satan's counterfeit. It's contrary to the gospel of grace. But see, the reason Operation Bernhard didn't succeed is that some of the men that they recruited to do the forgeries were Jews. And the Jews dug their heels in and they said it's too long for, it's going to take longer than we thought and they slowed the process down and the operation was a utter failure. And so church may we be like those Uh, in the church in Rome who were strengthened according to the gospel. May may we be like those Jews who dug their feet in and said, no, we're not going to allow counterfeits on our watch. We're not going to allow a counterfeit message of the gospel to creep up and be mainstream in the church, not on our watch. No, we're going to watch out. We're going to divide over this. May we bear fruit just as they did in Rome to the ends of the earth until God's glory and God's renown are known in every nation, tribe, and tongue. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this incredible book that we've been studying. Lord, this last appeal is a heavy one, but Lord, there's heavy weight to cashing in the gospel for some counterfeit. It's gonna lead to deception. It's gonna lead to corruption. It's gonna lead to destruction. And so, Lord, we we don't take this lightly. We don't leave today commissioned out uh, just to take God's word, the revelation of God's truth, and, 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 and just be frivolous with it. Lord, we realize the, 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 like, what's, at sca- what's at stake here. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen our resolve in a world where people are questioning orthodoxy. Lord, you would strengthen our resolve as a Christian and as a fellowship to stand boldly for truth and against the devil's lies. Lord, we thank you that... The gospel is the mystery of Christ revealed to us. So, Lord, as we close in song, we want to come and behold this wondrous mystery, being reminded that you've done the work. And so, Lord, we thank you, God, that you alone are wise to dream up the gospel, to fulfill it, Lord, that we are now accepted in the beloved. What glorious truths we've learned through this study, Lord, and we ask that you would continue to minister to and through your church, Lord. We love you, and we thank you for this time as we've studied it, and we ask, the Lord, that you would encourage our hearts as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.